It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is where we have our weekly get-together of the East End's award-winning journalists to have a conversation about the local news. Uh, we're back after a couple of weeks off, and uh, good to be yeah. back. It's, I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton. He is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill, and welcome back. Good morning, Joe. Hi, everybody. And we, we brought we brought our A team on for the for the first first one back for the late summer. Uh, we have Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. We have Beth Young, who is the editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Good morning. And we have Brian Cosgrove, who's the host of the Afternoon Ramble right here on WLIWFM. Hey, Brian. Good morning. Good to have you here. So, uh, busy week last week. A lot of stuff going on, but uh, one of the more interesting events happened upstate, up near your hometown in, in Rochester, Bill, um, where yeah. Lee Zeldin, our um, U.S. congressman, who is also the GOP nominee for governor of the state of New York, was attacked uh, on stage at a campaign event there. Uh, and it turned into a very interesting political moment for Lee Zeldin, who used the, the moment sort of for all it was worth. Right. Right, Denise. I mean, we have to say Lee Zeldin was not injured. Uh, nobody was seriously injured in, in the attack. I had heard some reports of some minor scrapes and cuts and things like that. But the man had actually had had used a weapon of some sorts. It looked like a, a self-defense weapon. It was shaped like a cat where the eyes of the cat, you put your fingers through and the two ears were two very sharp points. And I did see some reports that, that the man sort of threatened Zeldin with that. I didn't see that in the video myself, but, but um, it was chaotic. No question. I mean, the man sort of just calmly walked onto the stage, right? It was, it was Stum a strange stumble, stumble down stumble. The stage. According, according yeah. to the FBI agent, uh, very David, he, yeah. he was inebriated and he stumbled onto the stage. He approached Zeldin and grabbed Zeldin's arm and Zeldin grabbed, it, he grabbed Zeldin's arm with the hand that he didn't have this. It, it was a keychain with a plastic, um, plastic, they're called plastic knuckles, you know, which are illegal in New York. Um, but, um, and then Zeldin grabbed, you know, he raised the guy raised his right hand where he had these plastic knuckles and, um, Zeldin then grabbed that his arm. And by that point, other people, including the Lieutenant governor, who's a, a she's interesting. Uh, she's got a law, law enforcement, <laughs> she's background, got a law yeah. enforcement background. I was just thinking of a campaign speech that she made that I saw. Um, and, um, so, you know, she she jumped the guy and this other man who's um, an ex-Marine and is also a candidate for assembly up there and was the MC of this event. He climbed back onto the stage and they tackled this guy. And in the course of that, the guy was still holding on to Zeldin. So Zeldin went down with him. Um, and then, you know, that that was it. Um, so he didn't actually strike Zeldin. He did make physical contact. Um, there's, uh, you know. And thank God he wasn't hurt. And I think we, yeah, you know, we need to say that there's no excuse for violence. He didn't and, have one of the guns that Zeldin is so, you know, interested in making sure people can carry if they want, right. regardless. I was going to say, it's, we should but, step back for a moment and just just talk about <clears> how sorry. You know, that's a terrifying moment when when you can't go out on the campaign trail. Um, without a risk of someone. And, and uh, you know, Denise, you're not wrong when, when you point out that, um, you know, when there's more opportunity around to, to do, to, to wreak havoc. I mean, when, when someone, when a relatively minor incident like this happens, I think it plants ideas in people's heads. And that's so frightening to me. Um, this was fortunately not an incident that turned out to be anything significant, but, but how simple it would have been uh, you know how easy it would have been to be a lot worse. It's 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 a you know little upsetting and and yeah and rightfully but, so. Uh, you know, anytime public figures are in a public arena, that's that's the case. You know, um, and so although although Lee Zeldin is a sitting congressman, uh, the, apparently there were no police presence there, from what I read. Um, but in any event, this man was uh, arrested then and um, charged with attempted assault. 
which is not a uh, bail eligible offense. The attempt offenses are not bail eligible in the New York State's uh, so-called bail reform law. And as we know, um, well, anybody who's been listening at all to uh, the candidate Zeldin um, in his campaign for governor knows that he has been just hammering Hochul and Albany Democrats and pro-criminal Democrats, et cetera, et cetera, for, in his words, uh, for this, uh, what he calls cashless bail. Um, and um, so he, like within, you know, from his very, from his second statement about what happened, uh, he was like, you know, he jumped on on that. With, um, within hours, within hours of the incident, yeah. right? It was that night. Yeah. Yeah. It was before the man was arraigned, actually. Um, yeah, he had was. already said, I expect this man to be released, yeah. he, which which is right. interesting in the context of what we've discovered since then, Denise, right? Well, I mean, yeah, yes. And but I will also say, you know, Zeldin, I think, would have said that regardless of what the charges are, because he yeah. has mischaracterized this whole bail thing from the very beginning. of his In what way? In what way? Um, is he mischaracterized? In, in, in that he he has put it in people's heads. You know, it's kind of like you repeat something over and over again, even if it's not quite right, it becomes facts in people's minds. And that's what's happened here. He said over and over again that, you know, this so-called cashless bail means criminals go free all the time. And he he has completely ignored any of the nuances in what this law actually established, the, the rubric of of bail reform. Um, he's completely ignored the nuances. And as a public official, certainly, but especially as an attorney, he's got to know what what the actual law says and what bail is all about. And he, you never know that by listening to him, you know, because he's playing to people who want to hear that because, you know, we, and, and he's pr- portrayed this bail reform law as the cause of rising crime in New York State since and, and, 2020. And- in, in the editorial that you wrote on, on riverheadlocal.com, Denise, you, you talk a little bit about, you, you looked at, at state statistics as to whether whether there are a lot of re-arrests of people who are released on, and, on bail. And there are not. But and there are absolutely, not, right? Absolutely not. I mean, this is it came from New, this New York State courts. <clears throat> it, they, they compiled and released the data. And, and you know, they've got like a whole year now come from January to December with all the data for 2021. And, you know, to hear Zeldin and other other um, politicians talk about this, you know, it's a result, you know, everybody gets everybody that gets arrested, gets out and everybody that gets out recommits, you know, commits new crimes while they're out. You know, and it's just it's 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 nonsense. It's it's pure and simple. It's nonsense. So I'm glad somebody finally did the the legwork on that, because that was my question all along was the 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 um the suggestion that everybody who's been out on cash bail is committing crimes while they're out while they're well, out well, is the thing. pretty difficult so let's go back so the Monroe we've asked the local police chiefs that question as well and yeah. they have no well, you know well I mean it takes time to to develop statistics and right. yeah. in that void of that time you can put whatever narrative you want in there and see if it sticks and, and I think it has stuck, about no that. question well and, and with a great deal of effort uh, it's yes. it's concerted effort it has stuck Absolutely. so Absolutely. Um, I forgot what you originally asked. Well, I was at the Monroe County District Attorney made the decision to file the charge that was um, attempted assault, which does does have the cashless bail is uh, not bail eligible. Yeah. yeah, it's not bail eligible. But um, there's an interesting twist to this, right? About the the district attorney, the the district attorney's office that made that decision. Well, so the district attorney, and I forget her name, but. Uh, in Monroe County is a, a friend and supporter of Lee Zeldin. Back in April, he named her a co-chair of his campaign, which I'm not sure if that I didn't look at, you know, who has the time for this? I didn't look into that. Was a co-chair of the county there or, or what? But um, he issued a press release yesterday or the day before saying she immediately said she couldn't serve in that capacity in his campaign. So like she immediately said, no, I can't do this. Even the day after he announced her, he says. Um, so I, I I don't know what the truth of any of that is, but um, she is a friend of his and he and he maintains that because of that, she recused herself from having anything to do with the charging of this man. Um, and so the man was charged with attempted assault and that's not a, 
a bail eligible offense. And so, you know, that means he had to be released on his own recognizance. So it fit um, the narrative that that Lee Zeldin had right. been using. And, before. and there now, are people accusing this district attorney of kind of doing that on purpose to set Lee Zeldin up for what he then proceeded to do for the following week. Um, every chance he got from like local interviews to Sean Hannity, you know, uh, the Sean Hannity show. So, I mean, you know, it played it, it played well for him in, in terms of fitting his narrative. And he capitalized on it, whether it was a setup or not. I don't know. But the thing that really struck me, I mean, I, I personally, I have been really stewing about this whole um, mischaracterization of bail reform. Um, by elected officials locally here, uh, members of the town board in Riverhead and and just, you know, everywhere. Uh, you know, for one thing, like New York's bail reform, right, is not responsible for the rising crime nationally, right? That's, ha- that's a was, national was, phenomenon. Right. In states that don't have this, you know, that still have bail. Um, and so, the bail the bail reform was 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 formulated to reset inequities where where lower income people and people of color served um, were 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 sent to jail who couldn't make bail sent to jail for years um, before they could they could go to trial they lost their jobs they you know lost families and couldn't support their families this was the the whole bail reform was was an effort to. Um, to, to correct some wrongs in, in the system, right? Absolutely. I mean, and those are well-documented wrongs. I mean, you know, people, there are people who can't make $500 bail or right. can't make $2,000 bail. And so you see this all the time. You go to local justice courts when people are being arraigned on criminal charges, you know, if they got caught with, you know, marijuana, if they got, you know, a DWI, whatever the case may be, if, if, it was like a, a middle class white guy or, you know, they, they they could have they had the money to put up bail and then they walk out, and, the, you know, and, and the, presumably at the same risk of reoffending, by the way. But, you know, right. The other the other thing with this is the, the ripple effect that that has. If somebody's not able to post bail on a relatively minor offense, now they miss work. Now they potentially mm-hmm. lose lose their job, which can lead to somebody losing housing. You know, it. it it's what their, their family needs public assistance now. I mean, like, you know, yeah. there's all kinds of economic reasons not not to do this, but just the, the inequity alone. And, and so, it, should be point, it should be pointed out, too, that Lee Zeldin's not alone in this. I had a conversation a few right. months back with Anthony Palumbo, who's our state senator and a former prosecutor. And, and I, he feels very strongly about this issue as well. It's, it's a Republican talking point in New York state. And, yeah. and I, frankly, I think there's room for criticism of what the state did yeah. with bail reform. It may have been a little too simplistic. It may have been, you know, it took away judges' discretion in pretty much all cases. And I think, I think there are some charges that maybe should have been added to the list that would have allowed a judge to decide that someone is it didn't take the discretion away in all cases. OK, I mean, it it applied to misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies from the beginning. Right. I mean, and, so, and when you and when you give judges discretion and, and I, I don't want to criticize any judges, but but then you have this this repeating cycle of you have judges who may not even know that they have a bias, um, but but develop a, a bias. And then you have this systemic um, you know, re- return to um, well. Well, it's a bl- he's a black guy, so I, he's he's going to be fi- violent and he's going to reoffend, and 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 so my discretion is I'm going to put him in jail. But you have the same white guy with a with a briefcase, um, you know, standing up there, and that judge's discretion is well, he doesn't look like he's going to reoffend, so I'm going to let him go. You have to eliminate the possibility of that, and I'm not saying judges are are guilty of that or would be guilty of that. But but by giving them that discretion, then you open up the possibility then of of that same systemic um, bias, racism, um, classism that that was in the in the system and, previously. And I mean, and, and don't don't forget, I mean, the thing that we everybody needs to know and lawyers like Lee Zeldin and Tony Palumbo know. OK, I mean, Tony Palumbo, by the way, is a 
criminal defense attorney. I'm sorry. I think I said prosecutor. He was a defense yeah. attorney, right? Well, he was. A, I think he was a prosecutor, but he, he is currently he still does criminal defense work as a, a state senator. But anyway, um, so like I, I, one thing to remember and it, for everybody else is that, you know, bail has one purpose. It is to secure a person's appearance in court when uh, pending their their charges okay so if you post five hundred dollars bail and you can go back to your life while you're you know finalizing your disposition on a criminal charge okay if you don't appear in court at your next date you lose your money yeah not only do they issue a, a warrant for your arrest but you lose that bail so it's to secure somebody's reappearance and that's it and that should that should only be the consideration and and you know Unfortunately, that hasn't been the consideration when judges have discretion, like you were just pointing out. Um, and, you know, it's not related to are they, a, you know, a recidivism risk? Are they a risk to, you know, reoffend? Um, I'll tell you that, they... Denise, there, there were a couple of high profile incidents, and one of them happened in East Hampton a few months ago, uh, where a, a, a group of you know, it sounds like it's, you know, I'm, I'm obviously alleging, I, I don't know all this, but it seems like it's an organized group of thieves came out and targeted a high-end store in East Hampton, and they ended up mm -hmm. getting caught as they fled. And, and it was noted that one of the defendants was shocked to find out that they were going to be held in bail and not released that day, that they assumed that they were going to get out Without they believe Lee Zeldin. Jokes on them. Incidents like that that I think didn't help the cause of, of making the point that that uh, that you know it's it's about just trying to get somebody back to but, court. But but but, but, they, but you see they, they swallowed the misinformation. They've been fed. This yeah. what happened. You know. Um, That's interesting. So, um, so to know. put a to to put a final point on the the conversation about the incident involving Lee Zeldin. The attacker does face federal charges now and is in custody as a result of that. So we should make that point. I also, before we leave the topic of Lee Zeldin, we should talk about the New York Times article that appeared this week that talked about the incident involving uh, Mr. Zeldin's campaign for governor and the attempt to get on the uh, Independence Party line in particular. That's obviously a lot harder to do these days. You need a lot more petition you need more signatures on your petitions. And his petitions were thrown out by a judge because some of the signatures appeared to be photocopies, I believe it was. The Times article did a little bit of a deeper dive into that incident. And they spoke to an expert who said that it was very clearly uh, not an accident. They said the quote is it was simple, blatant fraud uh, that one of the election experts said. Um, it's ironic. And it bears pointing out that Lee Zeldin on January 6th was deeply involved in the idea of promoting a, a false claim of election fraud. And now his campaign is uh, in, enmeshed in the same kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, that at least bears note, doesn't it? Well, I, it's, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, you know. It's there's, a, this, it's, there's this thing where people who accuse other people of things are actually doing them themselves. Projection. <laughs> a lot of projection. But, um, like, you know, so what happened here where there were entire pages of signatures that were photocopies of other pages. And these these pages were interspersed among the actual signature pages throughout the stack. You know, they weren't all in one place. And so that's what led that election expert to say the way these were distributed throughout the petition makes this look like it was very intentional. Um, if it were not, this wouldn't, you know. And Zeldin is saying, well, this was a grassroots campaign effort. Mm -hmm. We don't even, you know, his campaign um, manager said we don't even own a copier. Um, <laughs> and uh you know, we didn't do this. Nope, we didn't nowhere. We, we no... went to Staples. That's what he said. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> they had also they reached out to a, to a Long Island organization for help in getting petitions. And I think that may have been um, where some of this came from. Uh, it does seem like it was a grassroots effort, uh, but uh, it's, it's an intriguing development, as I said, just in, with the fact that um, Mr. Zeldin's been around the whole issue of 
uh, election fraud on the national scale. Um, well, and I mean, then we have this incident. So this just, you know, this just shows there are eyes on this stuff. Very uh, close. Rooting, it's very rooting out fraud. So that's yeah. a good thing. What's interesting to me is everybody misses the point that most of the election fraud, it, it does happen. It's very rare and it almost always gets caught. I mean, and so much but, of it is in signatures. I mean, you've you've covered a lot of that locally here. Yes, we had the whole issue in East Hampton town. And, and I think that there was sort of a everybody sort of took a laissez faire attitude with it for a long time and felt like everybody does this. So we're going to fudge it a little bit here and there. But that that is a very basic thing for uh, citizens to expect can, campaigns to do properly. So, can I just say something here? I, I'm going to sound really, really cynical, but I had I, I in my past life had enough experience in like electoral politics, and from in this life observations I've made that a lot of campaign operatives will. St- will stop at nothing. Like they will, st- you, they can't stoop low enough to make something happen their way. Like they just are like, whether it's stealing signs, you know, people's campaign signs or, you know, falsely representing that they're, they're with a particular organization that they're not with, or, I mean, they're just a bunch of conniving, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble, but conniving sneaky people generally, then it's like a big game and they'll do anything to win. Like, you know, and yeah. I, I, I've had some experience myself with, you know, when I've hosted debates and things like that, the things that happened, uh, you know, it's uh, with some of these characters that it's we're not talking always, about now. <laughs> it's not always top down, right? Yeah, I don't know. Well, but, and, you know, I, and the interesting thing about this, too, was that it wasn't like the Democrats that came forward and said, we suspect these signatures. I mean, it was, you know, it was, um, it was, another, it was the libertarians and yeah, another yeah. third party. And if, if they hadn't come forward, then this would have just come, gone through un, unnoticed, unchecked or whatever. And he would have had, you know, the independence party line. So it, interesting that, I mean, there, there had to be a complaint. The libertarians took it to the board of elections, mm-hmm. the board of elections through through these signatures out, if that hadn't happened, it just would have been unnoticed. And, and it makes you wonder, um, you know, to Denise's point, how how often um, that happens and, and whether it's, you know, goes unchecked and, you know, and, and things just go on. Uh, there's a point, too, to make that the Board of Elections on the state level and at the county level, they don't do they don't check things like this. They right. don't, you know. I mean, we had this with that with them last year when we were reporting on um, a candidate collecting more than the legal limit in campaign contributions. And, you know, I got on the phone with the Board of Elections spokesperson. So, well, doesn't anybody enforce this? Like, and it was like, no, mm-hmm. you know, how can we possibly enforce that state? Well, I don't know. You have computers. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, well, unless, unless, it, unless it's challenged. It, unless it, there's a complaint. And yeah. and. And I, I think also it bears to, uh, remembering that the Board of Elections is basically made up of party officials from the two main parties. And while they have their internal skirmishes at these boards uh, with each other, uh, because they're, you know, the political game they play, um, they're pretty much all on the same side when it comes to third parties. And like, you know, they just... They they don't they don't do they they're not the agency that unsuspecting members of the public might think that they are they're they're just really they're really not they're political it may, operatives it, as maybe well. that maybe that should change. It bears noting too that why was this important because the independence line would have given Lee Zeldin three lines on the ballot. Uh, both of the candidates will now have two lines. Mr. Zeldin is also on the Conservative Party line, and Kathy Hochul will be on the Working Families party line. So having a third line, having a three to two advantage could have had some type of an impact. Um, well, and, and, you know, with the independence party, it, it, funny, funny, not funny, haha. But I mean, people see see independence party and they don't realize sometimes perhaps that it's an actual political party. Um, you, you know, and you, you see this when people register to vote, I think, more than than they're voting. 
but they see, you know, they see Independence Party and think that that means that that's independent of political parties. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, we call it a blank now. If you can register to to vote, um, you know, without declaring a party, and 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 you're a blank. But I think a lot of people, you know, get caught up in this Independence Party thinking that it makes them independent. When that was one of the criticisms of the Independence Party was that right. they were taking advantage of people who were actually looking to be no affiliation instead ended up enrolled with the independence party, not realizing that they weren't registering as independent right. uh, per se. And it's, it's also worth pointing out that about a third of the voters in the first district are no affiliation or independence party. So yeah. uh, it's a fairly sizable number of people. Hey, this can we, can we just say, I'm sorry. No, show, no, I, I, well, but let before me we, before we move on to other, perhaps even more worthy topics than <laughs> let me say first, Sheldon. this is, this is behind the headlines sorry. on WLIWFM. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. That's Denise Civiletti of Riverhead <laughs> Local. Beth Young of the East End Beacon is with us. Brian Cosgrove of WLIWFM. And okay, go ahead, Denise. Let's I forgot about the radio thing. I apologize, That's okay. uh, Joe. But, but like, I, you know, one thing that I think bears noting here, I, I feel like I was, I was personally profoundly disappointed in Lee Zeldin and his complete, uh, like, disregard of a, a, an issue that he has uh, championed and held himself out to be a champion of, and that is um, care for returning veterans. Yeah. And in, in that whole in that whole thing with the guy upstate and the attacker and everything else, because the guy did a tour in Iraq, he got a medical discharge of some kind. Uh, a couple of years after he came home, a few years after he came home, his wife passed away. Um, leaving him with two young children, a set of twins. Um, he is an alcoholic. He, his attorney admitted this in the detention hearing. He was inebriated the day of this attack. He, very he's clearly a very, so, by the way, very, in the video. Yeah, yeah, a very troubled individual. He's unemployed. He's, you know, so, I mean, not that, that any of this excuses, you know, criminal behavior or anything like that, but, you know, we have in this state, entire court subsystem set up for veterans who commit crimes, who have substance abuse problems and things like that. And, you know, the Zeldin as a state senator and in Congress, you know, he, he worked to set up this peer to peer counseling thing, the Joseph Dwyer program, um, and, you know, has been a champion of veterans rights and assistance to veterans, particularly veterans, just like this man. Right. And, like he never even mentioned that until questioned by a reporter after yesterday's but, detention hearing when he did a press conference. Rather than than saying this is somebody we need to help and let's get him some help, he yeah. he jumped on the whole cash cashless bail bandwagon and, and it completely this, ignored this that into, like, a, into a political uh, he, event. He right could have he could have addressed both things. That's all right. I I, I want to yeah, say about absolutely. that. I just feel like it, it, it's worth saying, and I'll shut up now. Thank you. <laughs> really worth saying. Really worth saying, didn't yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it's it underscores the fact that this was not a political attack in any way. This wasn't, and uh, someone. No. I mean, I I think I think probably everybody at that rally was a Zeldin supporter, and and it very sure. well could have included this man who just in a moment uh, of losing his head. I mean, he acknowledged that I think when he when he when he, he, he thought he thought later. he thought Zeldin was saying something negative about. Veterans, veterans or something yeah. or was would read read it wrong because I'm sure I'm sure uh the congressman didn't because as Denise pointed of out course. he's a veteran and that has has supported you know a lot of veterans programs you know throughout his time in office but you know it, it happened outside the VFW hall yeah there you go <laughs> thing, absolutely you know. absolutely um, by the way let me end the conversation by by giving a little bit of a shout out to Lee Zeldin, though, for as our U.S. congressman this week, voting in favor of the state legislation that would allow same-sex marriages uh, to continue, despite you know the, the federal, Supreme Court federal, not state. The, the federal, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, he was uh, he cast the vote at the federal level, obviously, because he's our congressman. Um, that would allow it to continue despite the Supreme Court uh, potentially getting involved. I think. That's but he voted, voted no on contraception, though. So let's let's did. give him let's give him a 50 50, uh, you know, but on listen, that. This, okay? is, this is a guy who was very anti um, 
same-sex marriage when he was in in Albany. So uh, whether it's a case of someone's position evolving or someone having a new set of political priorities and needing to to have that vote um, as he's running for governor of a state, which where I think it's overwhelmingly supportive of that. Um, I think it's a good vote. And I was I was concerned that, that we might see a different vote from him. So I, I, you know, tip my hat to him for for casting that vote, which very well may have been a little bit against his comfort level. So uh, I, I'm glad to see that. Let's let's move on to some local stuff. Um, one of the, the the big things that happened this week is that East Hampton Town joined Southampton Town in approving the community housing um, uh, fund proposal that will be on the ballot in November. Uh, but Denise, we're hearing now that, and, and Beth uh, Southhold uh, right. is poised to take some action to to do the same. But we're and hearing sh- now sh- Riverhead- Shelter Island too, right, Beth? Yeah, I believe Shelter Island's going. going and, to go. and But Riverhead appears to be out, Denise? At least- for now, I guess uh, it, it, the the feeling in town hall, uh, which you know, this was their initial reaction to it when it first came up months ago, is that you know, well, this is something that the other East End towns need, but we don't because we already have a lot of affordable housing. We've got all these apartments. We've got a lot of other, you know, relative to the other East End towns, Riverhead is affordable, mm-hmm. um, but relative to the population in Riverhead, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, you know. Well, um, I think, I think there, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I disagree with the decision, but I think they're also taking the stance that um, that they certainly wouldn't make as much money um, or, or, or see as much revenue as Southampton and East Hampton. Well, Southampton's expected to see $10 million a year, East Hampton, maybe $8 million a year. When it comes to Riverhead, it's probably probably a, a million bucks or, or less, right? If it's a half percent on, on the transfer and, tax. You know, but that's a million dollars more than they otherwise would have. And the other thing is that this can help people who need help. You know, the town could fashion a program that allows it to, to, be, to give grants to people that need help with uh, down payments, for example, when they want to buy a house. And I mean, you know, a $500,000 home in East Hampton might be like a real steal. Um, you're, but, you're not finding a $500,000 home in East Hampton. <laughs> well, but but <laughs> meanwhile, that's out of reach for like a, a lot of average people in, in Riverhead Town and particularly younger mm-hmm. people first starting out like these, you know, so-called starter homes that are, yeah. you know, $500,000 now. Um, you know, that makes it tough for kids like, you know, the, the, my own children's age, you know, and they're like in their 30s or hitting 30, thinking about buying a house, wanting to get out of one of these not so affordable subsidized apartments <laughs> that are downtown, you know, where it's, uh, you know, $2,100 for a one bedroom apartment, because um, that's, that's the, you know, the reality. That's what I find sort of surprising about yeah. Riverhead's decision here is that um, having some money to put towards the issue, um, w- whatever your situation is, it seems like it would be beneficial to the town. Brian, I want to bring you in because you've been quiet. You look comfortable in your chair there. We're going we're gonna to turn it into a hot seat. Brian, you and I talk about affordable housing all the time offline. I mean, it's, it's obviously, I think it's a conversation everybody has locally. Uh, we've all dealt with it. I think, I think we see it all the time around us. Um, and you know, we were talking about the $500,000 house in East Hampton. So that's gone. And it's interesting. We had a, we had a express sessions event not long ago where uh, one of the local realtors said in the very near future, the million dollar house in Southampton and East Hampton town will be no more that all of the properties will be essentially over a million dollars and you will, you know, you will no longer see the the sub million dollar property. That time is is coming. Um, there's even at five hundred thousand dollars, that's an unaffordable house for the 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 majority of local people who who live and work here. Um, I, this is I've said this a hundred times, but it needs repeating. If this is a crisis, and uh, the fact that the towns have an opportunity here to do something. And may choose that that Riverhead may choose not to is a little alarming to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, it's that's I, I didn't hear that, that uh, they don't think a million dollars is going to be the bottom now with East Hampton and Southampton. That's very concerning. That but was one you, one realtor's opinion, but I thought it was striking. It sounds on the money to me. Eventually, that's what's going to happen. And uh, and as you guys know, what's happening is that everything is starting to move further west. To, you know, right. Places in Calverton or or the prices are going up and in Riverhead, the prices are going up and. You know, the other place, like Manorville has always been pretty desirable. And now uh, places like East Patchogue, it's a very desirable place to be. Patchogue Town is is doing quite well with their renovation. So it's closing in and eventually it's going to meet. And, you know, I know when I uh, got my place, which is part of Riverhead Town, I got denied for my first mortgage because things were so tight. The um, The taxes, really when they were incorporated in my mortgage payment, disqualified me with a certain bank. And I had to go to a second bank and thankfully I got qualified. Now, not to discount this half a percent for Riverhead, but you know, every penny counts when you're talking about regular people buying a house. Yeah. When you're trying to qualify for a mortgage. So you got um, which and I and I'm and I appreciate the conic land tax. I appreciate an affordable Housing, uh, half a percent. I think it's a very smart idea, but when you get down to it, I mean, when you're when you're talking about no money left in the bank after closing, you didn't qualify because of just maybe a couple of thousand dollars, maybe even less. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I can understand why Riverhead decided not to do it. Well, yeah. the same, that, it's that, very it's very tight. It's a very tight thing for people who are who are trying to. You know, and plus there's so much work out here. So if you want to, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I know a lot of people now who within the past couple of years have gone to um, Wading Hollow, Wading River, Calverton, which are beautiful places. Um, but now they're starting to be out of grasp for the regular working person. And they're, you know, they're still an hour out if you're going to try to get some work on the extreme east end. So it's it's pretty tricky stuff. Yeah. And, and I think it's it's really something that if, if you don't if you don't haven't tried to buy a piece of property in Riverhead, you might not realize like the property taxes in Riverhead are much higher than anywhere else on the East End. And it's yeah. primarily because there's so many people who have families there who have kids in the school and the school is a big school. Um, I mean, I, I my house is on the Flanders side, but I still pay into the Riverhead um, school district. But. Um, to see the supervisor's vitriol for this proposal that I've seen in the past, I, I, I don't, I mean, I guess she's kind of vitriolic about a lot of things, but um, um, it's, it's stunning to me. Um, you know, I mean, it's it, the, uh, the way this new tax is set up, when you're buying a piece of property that is affordable, it's not going to hurt you, you know, it's, it's, and I think yeah, that's so much of so much of the 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 housing purchases at that level are going to be exempt. And actually, yeah. Brian, the 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 new proposal with the CHF would increase the set aside for the CH the the CPF as well. So it, it actually right. will cut the tax for the lower priced purchases. Um, it will it will actually oh, reduce the, yeah. the amount of taxes that are being paid on those purchases. But but this re, this goes to a point, Brian. I don't think the messaging is, is getting out there. Yeah, that's um, tough messaging. How, yeah, how, and, how do you even I, like explain that in a bullet point? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, Brian, you're you've hit on something that I really worry about, which is I think that that because the CPF passed so, so easily and it, that's the wrong word. It passed by a wide margin, and that's because a lot of work was put in. Right, eventually, over, over a lot of years to get yeah. it to that point, and and yeah. and that's why it passed so easily. I think, and and it's popular. So when it was re-upped and expanded, those all passed fairly comfortably. I don't think this measure has that level of support in the community, and I, I worry that Fred Thiel spent twenty years working to get this measure to where it is. And if voters reject it in, in the towns that do put it up in November, I think we're going to miss 
an opportunity to do something substantial. Well, and I don't, I don't think it would come back. I, well, I was going to say, I don't think it would go away. I, I think, you know, so the state legislation is approved. So the towns could, you know, even if it fails, say it fails in Southampton this year, they could put it back up next year because the, the legislation's there and and Albany isn't going to go away. Okay. I think it but becomes harder change? if it fails. If it fails once, I think it becomes harder the, the second yeah. time. But but I, I think, you know, there's nothing preventing the town from from putting it up again. Well, I mean, different voters come out in the local years than in the um, midterm years. I mean, yeah. the people who are going to be voting this year are going to be voting on a lot of national issues. Next year, you're going to get people who care about a lot of local issues. Yeah. There was a conversation I know um, I've I've been told that there was a conversation among the supervisors about pushing this off to next year for that reason, that this yeah. this election in particular may not be the most opportune time to ask voters to approve a new measure like this. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, quite frankly, I think <laughs> most of the supervisors see the money they would lose by pushing it off yeah. for a year. Well, well that was. Go ahead, Beth. Yeah, that was that was Southold's um, kind of reasoning behind putting up. They're going to have a public hearing next Tuesday, August 2nd, 9 a.m. on whether to have the referendum this November. And that was the that was the big thing that drove them to actually finally bite the bullet and say, let's see if, if the voters want to do this. Um, they thought that, you know, we could bring in three million dollars this coming year that we're not going to get if we don't put this up. Well, yeah. and, and I think also it's just I mean, you wait a year and okay, so it's all, it sounds like it's only a year, but we're at such a crisis point now that if it's another year of not doing anything to address affordable housing, it, it, it's like, it, it feels like, and I understand the reasoning, but it feels like once again, talking about affordable housing, but kicking the can down the road, we can't do anything this year. Well, let's wait a year. And then next year comes, do you, do you put it on the ballot or not? And it, I, I think that the you know the, there has to be a mindset that we've just got to get this thing passed and get it approved and start doing something um yeah know. i mean i mean brian this is something it's something tangible um i feel like the market the the market here has not allowed for affordable housing i mean right. it's made a lot of local people who bought houses 20 and 30 years ago wealthy and it's allowed them to, to live a, a, a better life because the, the value of their properties have gone up and up and up. And some of them chose to cash out and go other places. And those properties then leave the affordable realm and become expensive because a lot of people will tear down and buy on those properties or, or they just become more valuable. Something has to be done. Left to its own devices, this local real estate market isn't going to allow normal people to live here for much longer. Yeah, it's, it's no question. It's, it's a crisis. And I, <clears throat> I, you know, I don't, I, I this is really going to sound pessimistic, um, you guys, but I think it's like the infrastructure out here. There's only, you know, up here, we've got the main road and we've got Sound Avenue down there. Literally, it's actually one road when 39 and, and you guys, Hill Street, eventually meet down by the diner. I don't, I don't think there's any turning back. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't see how you can't get anything now. You can't get anything east of Aquabog for under 500, right? Because because of either the pandemic or the North Fork is a happening place, which is great. But it's just everything, you know, on the Twin Forks is unobtainable. Maybe you could find something on the North Fork for 500. I doubt it. And like you guys were saying, maybe a million might be the bottom of the line for the South Fork. I don't know if there's and and. Bill's absolutely right. If we keep kicking the can down the road, but are we, is it too late already? How, how, well, I know that's very pessimistic. You know, I think, is, is, it, is it too late already? I, I, I think, Brian, a lot of people focus on, you know, home ownership, first time home ownership and, and all that. And I think I think you're, you're probably correct. It may be too late for that. I mean, certainly you can give people help with down payment assistance and, and all that. But when you're talking about a million and a half dollar home, I don't yeah. know, how, you got to give them a lot of help. I, I think, you know, when we talk about affordable housing and sometimes we forget about the different levels, and I've said this before, there's different levels of, of affordable housing. There's affordable housing for 
you know, for for the for the worker people who are working in, in McDonald's and Starbucks and can't afford a four thousand dollar apartment, um, there's um, there's there's options for people who doctors and lawyers who can't afford um, anything out here. You've got to look at not just home ownership. You've got to look at rentals. You've got to look at um, accessory apartments. Um, you know, on 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 those properties that that, you know, provide an apartment for, um, you know, for, for somebody who's working and can't afford to live here. But also um, when you have an accessory apartment um, uh, on a home, then the homeowner that becomes more affordable for the homeowner because they can calculate in the rent that they would get on that accessory apartment for, um, you know, on, on their mortgage calculation and all that. I mean, Brian, imagine if if the house that you had bought had had an accessory apartment, you know, over over a, a garage or you know something in the back, then then your approval might have gone a little quicker and a little easier right. for for that. So, I, I think you know we we need to look at the bigger picture and we need to look at all levels, of, you know, of of help that we can give. But I think you're absolutely right, Brian. I mean, you're not going to make a two million dollar house or a million and a half dollar house affordable for somebody working at a newspaper or a radio station um you know I, I, it's just not going to happen I, I don't see it happening i don't i don't know what what benefit you can provide there you we would have to give them um you know you've got to you've got to cut down half the price of that house and maybe there's a way to do that they've talked about that and in, in investing you know partially in a house that the town would then own you know half the house and um you know, and when it resells, the town gets that money back, and maybe there's a way to do that. But I think if you're talking about a limited amount of money coming in from a, you know, CHF every year, you, you've got to focus more on rentals. You've got to focus more on projects like, like they're talking about in in Sag Harbor, where you're going to put seventy some odd units of of rental housing in a downtown area that you know that is just going to make that area more affordable for the people working there. But Denise, that's the point I wanted to make when we talked about Riverhead. I think it's a reasonable thing for Riverhead officials to say, we are already the, the place where people come for affordable housing on the East End right now. But to miss out on an opportunity, there's so much you could do with this money that that can, you can, you know, a, a, a town like Riverhead could really get creative with it. And Beth talked about taxes. I think maybe payments in lieu of taxes is one thing you could do to make a property more, more affordable. There's just, there's so many to, to say, thanks, but no thanks, we don't need the help. I, I think really misses that this is going to be, this is a generational problem. It's going to take a long time to fix. And the more money you can throw at it, the better. I have a feeling Riverhead will be revisiting this in, in future years. I really do. Um, because I think it, the the position that they've taken that we don't really need to do this, um, this is for those other towns, doesn't really address the needs of the the population here right now. Um, you know, I, I think in terms, especially in terms of finding, you know, a, 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 in terms of home ownership as well. Um, you know, I, it, we're, we're stuck in such a catch-22 with all this stuff. I mean... Yeah. You know, the, the rental apartments that they build and rental, you know, and include, I mean, even even the homeowner owner occupied things that they've built in Riverhead, all the um, 55 and over, you know, condos um, is all aimed at not having children move into the district for like the reasons Beth alluded to before, because, it you know, it costs a lot to educate the kids the way education is funded outside of New York City in the state of New York. And, you know, that is it relies disproportionately on on property taxes. And so, you know, our property taxes in Riverhead are, you know, 60, 65 percent of that bill is for the school district. And the school district in Riverhead is expensive. It's a large district. Mm -hmm. It's got a large and growing population. It's one of the few districts that are still growing. It's got a large population of uh, children who need additional assistance because they are English English language learners, um, and you know it's got a lot of special needs, and so it's expensive. It's more expensive to educate children in the Riverhead District, and there's more of them. So, you know, right. everything in, in housing has been focused on, you know, let's make sure it's going to be really really hard for anybody to you know have 
a family in one of these apartments or, you know, in obviously in the senior housing. So, um, and that, that's so wrongheaded in a lot of different ways, uh, you know, yeah. uh, but yeah. it's really this catch 22. And, and when they build these, um, these apartment complexes, for example, which, you know, we've got several built in, in, in under construction now and uh, planned if, if they provide so-called workforce housing um, that they get tax credits and, and assistance from the county, state and federal governments to to build these things. But um, those come with um, with strings attached and it limits how much people can earn um, to and, and, and well, it says both a top and a bottom or how much people can earn. And it's like, you know, to qualify for like low income housing, you need a lot more household income than than you get if you're the kid, you know, somebody working in retail, which is most right. of our stores or, you know, most of the jobs around here now. It's like, yeah. so it's yeah. really a conundrum. I mean, I, I don't know how it's solved. I wonder, you know, I'm I'm rooting in a big, big way for the uh, for the old downtown district. And, you know, it's got some we got that ten million dollar grant and it looks good. And I love the old downtown area of Riverhead. But I wonder when it does turn that corner, which eventually it's going to do like Patchogue did. Is that going to turn it into people are going to start raising rents and they're going to start sure. pushing out any affordable housing? It's going to be, be really, really desirable. Yeah, it's, he's got the Peconic River there. They're doing all these, you know, live at five things are happening. It's great. And it's got such a great feel to it. The old downtown, when it does turn that corner eventually, which it's bound to do, is it going to is it going to gentrify Riverhead? Absolutely. I think that's just a like it's a natural progression with these things. Yeah. Like some of these homes that have, you know, I mean, never mind the, the, the apartment buildings that they've got limits that are built, built into the law that created them but um you know a lot of these homes these older homes some of them are rather ramshackle uh in the downtown area and in the surrounding area and like in riverside and, and parts of flanders even um that are absentee you know owned by absentee landlords and are not in the best of shape and you know when it, the time comes where those guys and women can make um, more money by selling those properties to an investor or somebody who wants sure. to live there than by renting them, uh, you know, they things will. are going like, to happen. Like yeah. Greenport, like all those yeah. beautiful yeah. homes in Greenport that were run down. Now it's they're all getting renovated and, you know, yeah. which is and which is you, why it, it could be beneficial to have something like the CHF in place. To try and counter some of that stuff. So if you're gonna if you're gonna displace people, you should have a place for them to go. Absolutely. But to your point, I mean, there's there are other ways to provide affordable housing. Like you mentioned earlier about accessory apartments, for example, Mm -hmm. Uh, converting one family homes into two family homes. Uh, You know, people have to be accepting of that. Yeah, Yeah. it's going to be a complicated issue. It took a long time to get here. It's going to take a long time to get back out of it. And we're going to have to use a lot of tools in the toolbox, I think. We are out of time. Um, We we left a lot of topics on the table, which means that we did a nice deep dive into the ones we did talk about. So I want to thank our panelists today, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIW. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, as always, to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Thank Uh, you, Joe. I'm Joe Shaw. We will be back next week with Behind Headlines. Thank you, guys.